live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. With all due respect, I reject your theory completely. But you know what? There needs to be some backlash to this. This would be disastrous. There really has to be a better way. And I think the biggest question here is, what the hell is going on? The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. Move for present. Get in the race. Will he run? And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the program. So glad to have you with us. Special thanks to Scott Warris for filling in for me yesterday. Um, we were in Colorado over the weekend. We have some friends who have what they describe as a cabin um, outside of uh, Aspen. And they were kind enough to invite us with a couple other couples out there to enjoy it, play some golf. Um, if there's a picture of a Fran and I at uh, my Twitter account, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. And there's a picture of us kind of on, on this patio. Um, it's just, if the view looks like it was spectacular in the picture, trust me, the view was absolutely spectacular um, in, pres- in the presence. And we very much appreciate our friends inviting us all all during the time i i fran kept we were out there fran kept saying okay be on your best behavior we want to get invited back <laughs> you know so it's like don't do those things that we know that you are capable of doing so I had a lot of great I had a lot of fun and enjoyed it and um it is you, we, we're, when you're playing golf at elevations of six thousand or seven thousand or eight thousand or nine thousand feet it's it's it is it's a very interesting game and we certainly had a lot of fun all right I am bummed out that this place is closing, but if Fitzy's is closing, can any independent pharmacy make it? Came back last night to the news that Dan Fitzgerald's Pharmacy, Dan Fitzgerald's Pharmacy on Silver Spring in Whitefish Bay, it is an institution. It was, it was originated, it was originally started in 1954. Local independent pharmacy. It is, it, it's been a cornerstone of Silver Spring Drive in Whitefish Bay since 1954. They used to, it was one of those places that until the mid 70s, they used to have like a soda counter, you know, where you could go in and you could get your egg salad sandwiches and your, you know, ice cream sodas and your ice cream cones and things like that. Used to have a big candy counter. We have been, I have been patronizing Dan Fitzgerald's Pharmacy, well, since my parents moved here in the mid-1960s. It was just always the place that you went to. And I understand you've got a million, like, Walgreens stores that are out there. You've got a million CVS stores that are out there. We have always used Dan Fitzgerald Pharmacy. When I lived in Whitefish Bay, it was arguably the closest pharmacy, but also not necessarily the cheapest, but you patronize the local pharmacy, so we never went to the chains. When I moved out of Milwaukee County, you know, there there are lots of some of these chain pharmacies that are a lot closer to where I live, including a couple that are like right across the street. Well, it didn't occur to me, I get a couple things every month, you know, monthly prescriptions, didn't occur to me to move those prescriptions. And so even though, you know, Fitzgerald's Pharmacy, they call it Fitzy's, even though it's a little bit out of the way, well, okay, I just made a point of going a little bit out of the way. It was five or ten minutes out of the way, but I wanted to support the local pharmacy. I had noticed stuff that was going on in the pharmacy uh, for the last year or two. It seemed like the, the shelves didn't have as much stuff on them like retail stuff as they did before but this was a place you know you'd go in there they had magazines one of those places that you could go to buy magazines and things like that my late wife when we lived in whitefish bay used to make a magazine run like every monday and she'd go and buy all these different magazines and come back and you know read them it it seemed that they, they had fewer and fewer items on the shelf 
This year, they changed their hours in the summer. On, on weekends, they were only open, like, Saturdays, I think, 9 till 2, and Sundays, 9 till 1 or something, very limited. And I, I guess the last few times I've been in there, I was thinking, okay, this is maybe this is kind of the beginning of the end. This probably isn't a good sign, and you're dramatically cutting back your hours and things like that. But nevertheless, I, I hope this place was going to stay open because – it was such an integral part of the community and a part of people's lifestyles. And and this is not a knock on, on the giant – this isn't a knock on Walgreens. It's not a knock on CVS or anything. But there's something about these local businesses that you really want to see succeed. And I guess just because this place had been in business for you know, 65 years – because it had such a loyal following, and people, I think, really did love it, I, I thought, okay, maybe this was going to be immune. Maybe this was going to be the place that was going to be able to survive. Story in the paper, I think, yesterday, and they, they put it up on their Facebook page. They're saying, no, after 65 years, we, we can't make it. The problem is the vast majority of our business, 95% of the business comes from prescription drugs, and we can't compete on prices with with the chains, we're um, with the large chains. Um, we're being squeezed out by insurance companies who are lowering the reimbursement rate. Um, we've got this issue because apparently the um, when it comes to Medicare, uh, a lot of a lot of our customers who are on Medicare have had to switch pharmacies because we're not their preferred vendor. You put this whole thing together, and and they can't make it. Our number is 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, look, I, I understand in some respects this is personal because if you didn't grow up in the North Shore, you're like, okay, why is this guy talking about, you know, wh- who cares about one local pharmacy, you know, in, in the North Shore? Big deal. You can still go to CVS. You can still go to Walgreens. You know, you're going to be able to get your prescriptions filled, and you might even be able to get them filled a little bit cheaper. And and there is a truth to that. Nevertheless, I, I'm just – I'm devastated is probably too strong a word, but I'm extremely sad to see this place that I have patronized for my entire adult life and most of my childhood. I'm extremely sad to see the news that this is closing on Monday, and it really makes me wonder. Like I say, if Fitzies can't make it, is any place going to make it? Is this is this now the future that, you know, these independent businesses, whether they're hardware stores or pharmacies or whatever, they're, they're just not going to be able to survive? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. It, this is clearly the end of an era. If you're familiar with this particular drugstore or the larger issue, I mean, it, is. Are we going to see the complete and total demise of independent businesses, particularly independent pharmacies? Because like I say, if Fitzies can't make it, I don't know that there's any place that can make it. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us, Dave in Milwaukee. Hi, Dave. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? Well, I, I certainly, my heart goes out to Dan and all the community there in Whitefish Bay. That has been an institution, as you said. But I am uh, encouraged by a number of independent pharmacists across the country that have really embraced the necessary changes to overcome these reimbursement challenges on the prescription side. Um, our company has worked with pharmacies for 40 years, and uh, we still have about 10,000 of the 20,000 independents 
that are relying on us for service to try to bolster their front end yeah. non-prescription business. Yeah. I mean, what, what they say about Fitzgerald's, the guy says, hey, 95% of our business is coming from the, the pharmacy stuff. So it, it's just to, to try to figure out where we're going to make up that difference just didn't make sense. I mean, I seriously wonder, Dave, what the future is, whether whether we're going to get to a point where it's all going to be online and, you know, mail in stuff, things like that, where it, it's just, you know, every, you know, every time you need a prescription refilled, you go on the Internet, you enter some data and then it shows up at your door, you know, a day later. Yeah, I mean, that's it's definitely a scenario that is plausible. And at the same time, there's a tremendous amount of service that the yeah. educated professional pharmacists can provide in health management, therapeutic management, even helping family caregivers yeah. who are caring for a loved one at home and are ill-equipped. Yeah. A pharmacist is a godsend. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. And that and that's really, that's kind of where, aside from just the, the personal connection, that's sort of the loss. I mean, I'll tell you what happened in my case. It was um, through our insurance carrier. If I if I wanted to go to Fitzgerald's pharmacy and like I said I take I take two prescriptions a month, um, if I wanted through our insurance carrier I could have gone mail order through you know one of the big chain pharmacies and they would have delivered three I want to say it was three months of prescriptions at a time, um, but because I, I didn't want to do that I wanted to go to Fitzgerald's they they wouldn't they wouldn't give me three months at a time but that's so why I had to go in every month so I, I went in every month because I wanted to support the local pharmacy I mean now I guess. You know, now now it's all right. You know, I mean, it's the same prescription. I mean, it's not like I need somebody to explain to me how to do this. Um, I, I'm thinking, you know, in the future, well, I'm probably going to go the mail order route if that's presented to me. I'll take three months at a time and just kind of move on. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty Perry in Milwaukee. Perry, you're on WTMJ. Hey, how you doing? Hi, Perry. Well, thanks. What do you think? Uh, you know, I'm I've never been to that pharmacy, but I'm not. It's I think that's the way it's gone has gone. With all the mind pop little shops, yeah. Because uh, I used to live on Third Street. Well, before they changed it to Martin Luther King Drive, and uh, you know they had little restaurants. You can go there and get your burgers, you know, and food. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Remember, like, the, remember the lunch counters that they used to have in in pharmacies? You know, where you could go yeah, and you could get an ice cream remember, soda. Yeah. Remember they used to have in Woodward. Yeah, right. The Woodward Woolworths, absolutely. Sure, you could. You used to be able to go in and get an ice cream soda and a cup of coffee or a piece of pie or you know a simple sandwich. Yeah, I remember those days. I miss them. Yeah, I I remember when I was in middle school. We used to leave the school, be able to go over to little restaurants. We used to buy. There used to be this place called Champs, uh-huh. on twenty twenty seventh and Kilbourne. It was called Champs. We used to we used to go there for lunch. Right. French fries and burgers yeah. and, you know, but all those places is gone now. Yeah, they are. No, thanks to call. You know, it, it's all right. As an aside, one, my 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 grand. I never knew my mom's parents, so I, I never knew my maternal or paternal grandparents. They they died before I was born. My my grandfather, my dad's father, I used to call him Pop. He died um, when I was ten years old. But but back, I, I have vivid memories of, of him and and what he would do when I was a kid. And my grandparents used to babysit for me, and he would take me over. Now this is, we, we lived in Baltimore, Maryland at the time, and there was a chain of drugs, a local chain called. 
Reed's, R-E-E-D-S, I believe, Reed's Drugstores, and they had a lunch counter. And some of my fondest memories of growing up as a kid is my grandfather would take me over to, you know, Reed's Drugstore, and we'd sit at the lunch counter, and he'd have a cup of coffee, and he'd buy me, like, a chocolate ice cream soda. And I just, and we'd, we'd just sit there. Now, the other side story of this is um, my grandmother didn't like my grandfather to smoke, and this is 1968, so he'd, he'd go over to the lunch counter, and he'd have a cigarette, and he'd have a cup of coffee. And the deal was I wasn't supposed to be able to tell him. I had to promise. This is where I learned the lawyer-client privilege stuff really early. I had to promise that I would never tell my grandmother that my grandfather was having a cigarette when he was sitting at the lunch counter having the cup of coffee. So I, I did even back then. I remember thinking, my guess is she probably is going to figure this out. But but regardless, but I have this incredibly fond memory of, of doing that. Um, Greg in Waukesha. Greg, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Man, Jeff, the way you describe those lunch counters, I wish I lived back in that day <laughs> where lunch, you know, I could go to the pharmacy. And But, right. uh, Jeff, I support a lot of mom-and-pop businesses. Um, my pharmacy is mom-and-pop here in Waukesha. And I, too, am worried. Like you said, they're trying to get me to get my prescriptions on a mail order right. kind of thing. And I, too, am worried about that. I, I like going into the pharmacist once a month. I know the three or so pharmacists and the, you know, two or three pharmacy techs by name. Mm-hmm. And they and, know you. And they and know they you. they know me. Right. Yep. And I can call in and say, okay, I need refills. And they'll be like, okay, you know, they'll be ready in a while. And, and uh, you know, just really good service. And I've been at um, some chain pharmacies where I haven't had as good of service. So yeah. no. I... Yeah, I mean, thanks for calling. I mean, it's look, I understand this is the way of the future, and somebody sends me a text saying, well, you're a capitalist, this is just a capitalist. I understand. I, I That doesn't mean, even though I understand what's going on, it doesn't mean I'm not a little sorry to see th- this happen. And, and look, and I understand this is, this is not unusual. When Walmarts kind of took over, they ran out a lot of mom-and-pop businesses. When McDonald's and Burger King, you know, be- became the, the giant industries they were, they, they chased out a lot of mom-and-pop diners and things like that. I mean, so I understand the reality. doesn't mean, though, I, I can't be sorry when this change happens. David in Mequon. David, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Uh, really quickly, you know, I'm actually surprised that Fitzgerald's didn't close sooner, mm-hmm. uh, just for a simple reason that, you know, the independent pharmacies have been uh, closing up at a much uh, quicker rate, especially in the last, you know, six, seven years. As a matter of fact, if you remember the one in Shorewood, yes. Hyatt, which was on Capitol, was in business for 100 years, and that closed up last year. Right. So it, it's kind of one of those things to where, unfortunately, um Part of it is the fact that it's the red tape at the federal level. A lot of people don't realize all the paperwork that you have to go through in order to sell prescriptions, and it gets more and more and more. And ultimately, um, the pharmacist and the, the person that owns it, whatever, you know, they don't have any time then to actually serve the customers, and it gets too overwhelming. And consequently, you know, right. Walgreens, the world, CVS. You know, they're able to do it because they have the manpower to handle all that red tape that comes at them. You know, and interestingly, you mentioned Walgreens. E- even that, you know, they're closing 200 stores. <laughs> you know, yeah, so it's, yeah. you know, I, which makes me think that we're, now that doesn't mean that they're close to going out of business or anything, but it makes me think that more and more it's going to be this mail order pharmacy thing that I just, yeah. I think that's the trend. Hey, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Look, I, I just want to take a walk down memory lane and I understand if you're listening, you're saying, okay, why is he talking? Who cares about this one pharmacy in, in, in Whitefish? 
Bay, but this was a big part of the community, and its departure is going to leave a, a huge gaping hole on Main Street. And my guess is, you know, you can probably think back to maybe that mom and pop drug store that you know you went to, or your parents went to, or whatever, and it's gone. And I understand that's just the way of the world, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that we can't miss it. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, you're going to leave now, Gru? Okay, all right. My my producer has to run out to his car for something. So go. All right, I, I can handle this for a couple minutes. All right, I can. I go out, get whatever you need to get in your car, then come back, and you can you can answer answer calls in just a moment. That's fine. This is my favorite text of the day so far, Jeff. Happy National Radio Day, WTMJ. I love uh, especially the non-political talk radio that you guys offer from time to time. We do some political talk, too. Regardless of whatever media have come after, my first love is talk radio. Please keep it local. Um, oh, well, when do you have a Hall of Famer in Jeff Wagner? Well, that's nice. Thanks for being there. I don't know. Don't know about that, but uh, I certainly enjoy doing the show. A lot of a lot of fun, and I appreciate, appreciate everybody listening for all the years. Okay. Here is the story, and I th- this morning I was at the I was at the gym, and I, I saw this story on Good Morning America, and I was vaguely familiar with it. But here here's my takeaway on this: I don't care how well intentioned you are, I don't think you have a right to let your child die. What is this man talking about? Well, here here's the the story: there there's this couple in Florida. They have a three-year-old son named Noah. Noah is diagnosed with a form of cancer called acute lymphoblastic leukemia. I I understand it's a blood cancer. All right. All right. The child is three years old. There is a treatment regimen that exists for this type of cancer in children. It's two and a half years. And believe me. Nobody has to tell me, you know, I, nobody has to lecture me about, you know, how devastating, you know, and how difficult chemotherapy can be and how hard it is on people. I, I understand that. Believe me. But the success rate in kids that have this particular form of cancer by participating in the chemotherapy regimen, there is a 90 percent, 90 percent chance of survival. All right. Follow me with this. Nine out of ten. Now, you could be the one out of ten. Also, chemotherapy is hell. There, there's just, you know, you're going to, people react to it in different ways. But you follow this two and a half year regimen of chemotherapy treatments, and chances are that you, you will live. All right? That, that it's, I don't know if it's curable or they put it in remission or, or however you want to phrase it, but you, but you will live. The chances of doing nothing with this are, well, you're, you're pretty much signing a death warrant for the child at some point in time. So anyhow, you have these parents, and they get this diagnosis, and they take Noah in, and he gets, I think, the first two rounds of chemotherapy. And they say, well, it's just, he doesn't like it. His hair is starting to fall out. You know, he's irritable. He's uncomfortable. And they decide, we want to cancel the chemotherapy. And instead, we want to treat him with herbal remedies. We want to treat him with medical marijuana. We want to treat him with, is it CBD oil? You know, we, we want to use the, the stuff that you can buy over the counter now. We, we want to try alternatives. And the doctors say, okay, the, the, these alternatives, and there's always the possibility of a miracle, but these alternatives, at least based on medical science, they don't work. 
They, they don't work. And you do this chemotherapy regimen, and this kid's going to live. Now, he's three. Now, I think when they started this whole thing, he's three or four years old. So doctors say, you got to do this. The parents say, no, we don't want to do this. And what they do is they take the child, and they flee the state of Florida to avoid having, again, the hospital go and try to get an order saying he has to go through this. They flee the state of Florida. They go to North Carolina. Welcome back. All right. You got out to the car quickly. Real good. All right. So they flee. They flee the state of Florida. They go to the state. They go to North Carolina. Ultimately, they're caught in North Carolina. They're brought back to Florida. And the state of Florida is now in court. What's happened to the boy is his custody has been taken from the parents and placed with the maternal grandmother who is you know, allowing the chemotherapy treatments to proceed. There is a trial going on right now as to whether the parents should have the right to discontinue the, the treatments, the chemotherapy treatments, and instead, you know, go off and try the medical marijuana and the, the kind of, you know, holistic sort of healing type of things. And you know, that trial is supposed to, I think, end today, and a judge will make a ruling sometime soon as to whether the parents should have the right to decide the child's treatment or whether the state and the doctors have the right to do it. Now, there was a piece on Good Morning America today, and, and everybody I everybody on the, this, the whole show, the tone of it was very, very sympathetic to the parents. Can you believe that the government is going to tell them that this poor little boy has to go through this awful chemotherapy treatment that's causing his hair to fall out and, and causing you know him to be irritable? I mean, that was kind of the tone of the piece. I'm on the treadmill at the gym yelling at the piece, going, if they don't do this, if these hippy-dippy parents, you know, don't do this stuff, this kid is going to die. This will, I mean, if you're playing the odds, and I'm a guy that plays the odds, if you're playing the odds, this kid is going to survive. And I guess I think it is the height of irresponsibility for the parents to simply ignore the overwhelming weight of scientific evidence and say, well, you know, we, we want to continue to allow the kid to suffer from this cancer and we want to try, you know, medical marijuana or CBD oil or, or whatever. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Supporters of the parents are describing this as a medical kidnapping way beyond the control of the state. I say... Just like you would not allow parents to beat the children, just like you would not allow parents to neglect their children in a fashion that put their lives at risk, turning down a type of medical treatment that shows a 90% chance of success when somebody is faced with a horrible disease, but one that is controllable if not curable, I think this is neglect as well. I'm sorry the parents have to go through this with their child. I'm particularly sorry for the child. But, yeah, I think if they're not getting the chemotherapy, the state needs to move in and say, yeah, we're going to order it. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're back. Sally in Burlington. Sally, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I I wanted to say that um, I totally agree with the parents. Um, I think it's their right to choose treatment, and if they decide to pull that child out of the current treatment, that's their right. And Even if pulling him out of that treatment is going to, in all likelihood, result in him dying. That could happen irregardless. Even if they keep him in that treatment, 
he still could die. Yeah, but the, but the numbers say nine out of ten people that get that treatment are going to go on to live perfectly healthy lives, that they will be cured or will be in remission. Now, he could be that one out of ten. But, he could be, but yeah. at the same token, there's no guarantee with that. And that's my point, is that either treatment, for, see, for me, I'm basically faith-based that if you add prayer to anything, God works in both ways. If you add prayer to that 90%, yes, he could make it. If you add prayer... But but hasn't God given us the medical technology? I mean, hasn't God given us these cancer developments? How can you turn your back on a successful regimen? Because there is also good proof about the other more natural ways for treatments today. And you add prayer to that, and it can and will work if the faith is there. I've, I've heard of people doing such things. I know of a person um, that had cancer, and they did natural-based, and it worked, but they did prayer. And so it's faith-based. And if you're not in tune to that, there are some people more in tune to medical um, the moder- uh, the the old ways of medical, where um, there are these new based of uh, new natural ways that do work, and to me, if the parents see what they see, and they feel at this point it's time to turn it out and try something else because for the child. I think that that's their decision, and nobody has the right to take that away from them. Okay, Sally, I'm, I'm sorry. We're going to take some more calls. I, I could not disagree with you more. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I just – look, I'm not a big government guy, but these parents are signing the death warrant for this child. That that is the That is the practical effect of this. They are signing the death warrant for this child because I just – I mean, I, I understand the value of prayer. Believe me, I understand this. But at the same time, you have you have a, a body of medical science that says this is something that is, is treatable. And, and yes, the, the treatment is going to be terrible. All right, and his kid's going to lose his hair and all that. But at the end of this, the odds are 90% that he is going to come out and he's going to live a life. If you don't do this, yeah, maybe he'll do all right, but the odds are overwhelming that he's going to die. And, and I guess to... to Look, it's one thing if you've got a 75-year-old guy that gets a diagnosis with, with cancer and says, I don't want to go through this chemotherapy and I don't want to make this treatment. But but the kid, the four-year-old, can't make that decision for himself. And to me, I, again, I just think this is a version of infanticide. I, I mean, you, you wouldn't allow – would you say – all right, you know, we reject any sort of medical treatment at all, so we've got we've got all these different things that are curable. This is a routine childhood disease. Now, I understand cancer is more dramatic than that, but, you know, all you have to do is take this pill or go see a doctor and get this shot, but, you know, because you don't believe in that, we're not going to let you do it, and we're going to let the kid die. I'm, I just, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand that, and I don't think the parents have a right to do that. Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Vincent. Uh, these parents are totally wrong. And the fact is, when you listen to their reason, it's basically about them. They don't want to listen to the kid whine. They don't want to listen to the kid talk about he's losing his hair or being irritable. It's about them, you know, not want to take care of this child in, in, in a certain way. The fact is, is that this is a treatment that is 90%, you know, 90% that it can, it can cure this child. Right, and, and so why would you go off and take a chance with CBD oil? It absolutely doesn't make any sense. The fact is, this is this is this this, this crazy parent in these days that they they just don't want to listen to their kids suffer. 
that and the fact is that at the point in time the kid suffers right now and he will get and in the future he will be better but they just don't want to deal with it. this is a more about them than this child well well right i i guess and again I, I look if there were a situation where they were to say right where the numbers were different your, your child has this form of cancer and the odds say that you know if we do this treatment there's there's a 20% chance that you know he might survive um, all right, that that would be different, but but this is that this is a ninety percent chance. I mean, the the, the statistics are, are there, and and for people who have the faith based stuff, God has given it. God has given us these developments in cancer. I mean, you know, God has worked with the scientists to provide this alternative that's going to guarantee that nine out of ten times the child is going to live. How can you? I just it's. I, I was yelling at the TV this morning, Vincent. I was yelling at it. Exactly. You know, the fact is, if, if you break your arm, if you break your arm, you sit there. It's going to heal wrong if you do not go to the doctor right. and have it set. So, that, so, 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 are you going to just sit there and say, "Well, let me let God heal this arm"? You know, the the, the fact is that, like you said, the the physicians are there. God, have, God has created this situation where we have physicians to do these things. But to me, it's about the parents. Yeah. They, this is about them. Not a, they don't, they're, they're not thinking about this child. They just don't want to go through the through, through the dealing with this child when he's he's complaining. Yeah, could be. Thanks for calling. And, and like I say, you change the facts a little. And and I, I want to make that clear. If this was some sort of experimental cancer treatment that had a very, very remote chance of succeeding and was going to cause all the, these problems, making the kid uncomfortable, etc. Well, then maybe it would be a closer call. Maybe then it's kind of a coin flip. But this isn't a coin flip. This is a standardized procedure that, that has an incredible success rate. And, and yes, Going through chemotherapy is, is unpleasant, and sometimes there's people that go through chemotherapy and they don't come out on the on the other end of it. I I, I know, but but this is this is one where they're saying, hey, look, this kid goes through two and a half years and it's going to be awful, but we think he's going to come out on the other side. Sue in Cedarburg, Sue, you're on WTMJ. Yes, I agree with you. I think, and also with the other um, person that you spoke to, is I think. They're not willing to do the tough part of parenting. Yes, it's going to be tough. And I know someone who had to do this for, for two and a half years. She's now 18, going on a scholarship mm-hmm. to college in New York, and is a wonderful, wonderful human being. They were very religious, you know, and, and they need to give that child every chance to live. And, and yes, it's going to be tough. But they need to do it, and I don't think they're willing to do the tough part of parenting. No, thanks for the call, Sue. And again, I, I didn't get I, – I mean, our first caller took it in the area of the, the power of prayer. That's not – I don't hear these two parents necessarily talking about the parent power of prayer. They're saying – we saw what two rounds of chemotherapy did to him. His hair was starting to fall out. He was getting irritable. He was unhappy. He was uncomfortable, which I, I understand. We we don't want him to be irritable. We don't want him to be uncomfortable. We want to try these alternative things. So for these parents, th- this this isn't one of that we're going to pray over him. This is just we think we should have the right to choose the therapy that we want. 
despite the overwhelming evidence in medical science that you, you do it the way medical science says and you've got a 90% success rate. You just, you know, try the, these other sort of hippy-dippy stuff. And I'm not, look, I, I, I understand there's lots of people who believe in that, but we're, we're talking about a life-threatening disease. And, and yes, maybe the medical marijuana and the CBD oil and the other stuff, you know, may, maybe and, and, you know, drinking the fruit juices and getting your vitamin A up and all that, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's, you know, going to be fine. You know, maybe that's going to be fine and maybe it's going to work, but the odds aren't in that favor. And I guess when you look at something and says, okay, there's a 90% chance that something's going to, it's your child. There's a 90% chance that this is going to work for your child. He's going to be cured and he's going to go on and he's going to be able to live a full and rich life. Who wouldn't take that? Really? This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Eric Bills, have you been following this Antonio Brown story? Oh, you know, yeah. Okay, so for people not keeping score at home, Antonio Brown is a world-class wide receiver, played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's getting up there a little bit for, you know, he's like 30 years old or something, but but he's still incredibly talented. He had a huge falling out with the Steelers. He wanted more money, and he was kind of a cancer on the team last year, missing practices and stuff like that. They ended up benching him at the end of the season. He was demanding a trade. So they trade him to the Oakland Raiders. Now, this has been kind of playing out because every year HBO does this thing. The Oakland Raiders are a disaster. They're, they're just a disaster. But um, they do, HBO does this thing called Hard Knocks where they, they focus on training camp, and they're, they're picking Oakland this year. So... Um, Antonio Brown, he's supposed, I mean, Oakland, it's, it's just a mess. This is their last year in Oakland. They're moving mm-hmm. to Las Vegas. So yep. everybody, it's just a mess. The team is dysfunctional. They're not that good. They're moving. It's just a train wreck. So Antonio Brown, he's going to be like this world-class receiver. Well, what he does, he, he, he hasn't been able to practice much because on his own, he went to Paris and went through this chirogenic treatment on his feet, which mm-hmm. is like where you, they, they, they go into like a freeze chamber or something like that, and some of these world-class athletes do it. But the moron apparently doesn't cover up his feet when he goes in, and so it's – it's I don't know what it is, but imagine like putting your feet on dry ice you know, or something like that. You're, you're going to burn. So he burns his feet, and apparently this – this is not – I mean, it, it like it takes all the skin off the bottom of his feet. So he's on hard knocks. He's showing the cameras these feet that are just like, mangled, disfigured. And, and there's really nothing you can do except wait for the skin to regenerate. Right, right. So he – He's been out a good chunk of the practice time because he can't run. You know, he can't he can't walk on these things. So you got this going on, and then this thing with the helmet. The NFL, <laughs> the NFL has has changed. They're they're concerned about concussions and player safety and all this. And you can argue they're late to the door, whatever. But they have a new rule that the helmets this year they have to be different type of helmets. They're, they provide like more padding or more safety or whatever. And this this guy. He's fighting the NFL because he wants to wear the less safe helmet. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think it's all for the cameras? Of course, it's all for the cameras. You know, and and of course, e- even in Oakland, I'm starting to watch this stuff. And management is now like, oh, for God, you know, they 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 got to be kind of supportive because they know the guy's a head case and they want him to play for him. But even now, management is like, okay, we you know we back him up, but but we've kind of 
played this out as far as we we can, and you know now we need to get back on the practice mm-hmm. field. And but I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, all right, what what is the guy's beef? The guy is essentially filing grievances with the league because he wants to wear a helmet that exposes him to more risk of injury. You know, and the league is, I mean normally it's the other way around. You know, the players are saying, "Hey, they're making us play when we're injured." This is the league saying, "You know, th- these helmets aren't safe." <laughs> and this guy's fighting about it. Mm-hmm. I I there's there's so much stuff in this world that I just flat don't get. <laughs> you know, it's, it's I just flat don't get it. It's making it for good TV though. It, well, no, and it's Hard Knocks, the third episode. They have to do five episodes. Third episode's on tonight. Um, there's no question. Yeah. The other thing is, you watch these shows, and I am convinced it is impossible. It is impossible to coach a football team without using the F word every third word. <laughs> I mean, it's just the the no. The other thing yeah. I'm watching it, Netflix. You have Netflix. Mm-hmm. Okay, have you ever seen Last Chance? You. No, I know what oh, you're speaking you, about, but I, I mean, have not this is all right. I, I'm now. I watched. All right, Last Chance. You is this is they just dropped the fourth season. I hadn't seen any of it until I, I watched the fourth season, and it just so riveted me that now I'm going back and watching the other ones. What they do is they go to these junior colleges, and you know, junior college football. You have all these kids that I, in many cases. At the high-level programs, these are kids that got bounced out of real colleges. I, I'm sorry, if you went to junior college, I apologize. But they got bounced out of Division One, you know, four-year programs. They were highly recruited, but they had problems, academic problems, problems with the law, drug problems, whatever. And so this is their last chance. You go to junior college, you get some stuff on tape, and maybe you can get, again, back into the big thing. Maybe you can get to the NFL. So the the the, the fourth season – had this guy, they were at some junior college, Independence, Kansas, or something like this. And this was their second season there. The coach, I, I'll give, he ends up getting fired at the end. But they're following this guy around. And honest to God, every, every second word is the F word. I mean, he cannot put a sentence together without using that word. And they're, they're interviewing all these people in town. This is this little town in Kansas. And they're going, well, you know, we, this is just no other no other instructor or professor would be able to talk to kids like this guy talks to kids, you know, and, and, and ultimately. But it, it's it's a fascinating show. But the same thing is true on Hard Knocks. It's like, can we – is that the nature of football, that you just can't communicate with – My kids have asked to watch it before. Oh. I'm like, absolutely not. You can't watch it. Sorry. I, no it, way. It was – I okay, all right, two weeks ago, my nephew – Week and a half ago, so my nephew was over. We were we were watching him, and he was sitting around. And, it, and it's the afternoon. I got the show on, and I'm I'm not really kind of paying attention because I'm not used to twelve year old kids in the house necessarily. <laughs> and the show is on, and I, I look up, and he's sitting there, and he's just riveted. <laughs> he's watching this thing, and I'm going, uh oh, you know, and it's just like change the channel because it's like I mean I I thought okay. You know, all right, it, it's a show about, you know, like junior college football and stuff and seeing how these kids kind of make it. And then I was like, uh-oh, you know, <laughs> Alex, just because, you know, somebody else chooses it that word, that doesn't mean, doesn't, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, doesn't mean it's right. But it's, um, anyways, I, I, I just digress. But this Antonio Brown, the, the, the guy goes for into Paris for chirogenic treatment on his feet and freezes them and, like, destroys it. Huh? All right, let us completely and totally switch gears. Now, I, I sent out a tweet on this. Because I, I think I was going to say I think the story in the local newspaper is wrong. 
in retrospect, I just think it's poorly written or poorly edited. And and I, I don't want to get hung up on it, but I, I linked the Journal Sentinel story. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I linked the Journal Sentinel story to what the Milwaukee Police Department says. Um, and, and I want to talk about the larger issue. Uh, my general take is, yes, let's find out the names of everybody who's driving recklessly, including juveniles. But here's the story. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the headline says, Milwaukee police will publicize names, photos of reckless drivers. For the next two months, Milwaukee police will publicize the names, booking photos, and arrest information of people convicted of and sentenced for felony reckless driving and or fleeing an officer, the department announced. For the next two months, Milwaukee police will publicize the names, booking photos, and arrest information of people convicted of and sentenced for felony drunk driving and or fleeing. Now, Gru, when you read that, it sounds, doesn't it, like they're going to put all, all the people convicted of fleeing or reckless driving, they're going to be publicized, right? Yeah. And when, when I first read it, I'm thinking, well, why are we waiting for the conviction? Why don't we put that up there for, you know, um, as soon as they're arrested? Now, the truth is, and, and again, that's why I think the article is written in a misleading fashion. The Milwaukee Police Department, their Facebook page says, as part of the Milwaukee Police Department's Keep Milwaukee Streets Safe initiative, every week for the next two months, the Milwaukee Police Department will feature a driver who has been arrested, charged, convicted, and sentenced for felony reckless driving and or fleeing. Okay, so the police department are saying, we're going to pick one person a week, and we're going to highlight that person, which to me is, is of course, much different than the implication in the paper that they're going to be publishing the names of, of everybody. And I guess if you read what the paper says, that's that's not the implication. Again, so I think it's either a poorly written sentence or a, a um, either poorly written or poorly edited or, or whatever. So the police department, this is the larger point. The police department is now saying, all right, we're going to pick one reckless driver a week and we're going to put his face and his booking photo and the fact that he was charged and his conviction and his sentence. We're going to put that up on on uh, on our page. So as an idea of, I guess, shaming or something like that. Now, let me say this. I have no problem with that at all. I have no problem with that at all. I would go farther. So not only would I pick one. I would pick everybody convicted of fleeing and or reckless driving. Everybody I would put up on social media. I would also include their sentences and the judge who imposed the sentence. That's number two. Number three, I would not wait until the person was convicted. Upon arrest and charging, all that information is public. I would put that up there. So when we have the story on a Tuesday about the two idiots driving the stolen car who've blown through the red light and been arrested, I would have their pictures, I would have their addresses, I would have everything up on social media so that people could, again, see who they were. I That's what I would do. I wouldn't wait for the convictions. But, again, I don't have any problem. But here's the, the larger point that I wanted to discuss with you. I think this initiative is fine, but I don't think it goes anywhere near far enough because you know the one thing that is missing in the conversation that we just had. No mention at all of juveniles. No mention at all of juveniles. When we know as a f- matter of fact 
that, I mean, I don't know what the overall percentage would be of people who are fleeing officers or engaging in reckless driving, but I, I don't think I'm out of line if I said, I'll bet you, I'll bet you 35%, maybe more, maybe less, but I'll bet you 35% of the situations where they have people blowing through red lights, reckless driving, et cetera, et cetera, I'll bet they're juveniles. And, you know, here's the problem with juveniles. We protect them. We don't, even after they are convicted, even after they're charged and convicted, we don't tell the public. The system doesn't tell the public, you know, that the person has gone through juvenile adjudication, that the person has been charged, been convicted, etc. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand that right now the juvenile code protects these little darlings. My question is, why? And and if we're really interested in public safety and trying to hold people accountable, you know, don't you think that somebody has a right to know if the kid two blocks over is, you know, stealing cars and blowing through red lights at 80 miles an hour and stolen cars and has now been caught? Now, I understand that would require it, it's not that's not something the Milwaukee Police Department can do, but it would require a change in state law. But given the reality of what's going on, why don't we make the names of these juveniles public? And if it's a good idea to, you know, expose some 24-year-old guy that's done it, why wouldn't we do it for the 16-year-old? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My my comment, at least if they're, they're running this program the way I think they are, it's a good first step. I don't mind cherry-picking. You know, pick one guy every week and put it up there. But I'd put them all up there, and I would include juveniles. Should we continue to protect juveniles? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. I have a text here. I'm not going to read the guy's name. He says, when I was 18, I got caught gun doing something stupid. My name and the situation appeared in a local paper. And when I received a call from my ashamed aunt, who was my role model, I was so embarrassed that I truly believe it was the motivation for me to get back on track. Okay, let's talk to Alan in Milwaukee. Hi, Alan. Hey, how you doing? Good. Um, uh, I guess um, I feel a little different about this. Um, I myself had a juvenile record. Um, I'm 40 years old now, and I uh, committed a... A crime when I was, uh, I believe, around 14 years old. It was something similar to, you know, with the situation we got going on in Milwaukee with stolen cars or whatever. I feel that by doing that, is, you know, when you're that young, you don't think, especially when you're that young, you don't have any supervision and you have lack for authority. You're to make stupid, dangerous decisions with what's going on in Milwaukee. Um, however, if by doing that and people are able to get a hold to your juvenile record, it, it, it's definitely going to affect people like me who committed those stupid crimes, but yet have maturely matured and and well, became a productive member of society. Let me ask you this: What if what if it wasn't the first time? But let let's say you had a policy, third time, third time caught dr- fleeing police in that stolen car. Yes. With, okay. I, I definitely agree. No, no, I definitely agree with that. Okay, so like you know, first time. Okay, we get it. The second and third time, I, I definitely agree with you. Okay. You, you should learn your lesson. Yeah, okay. The first time, you know. Okay, and I, and I can live with that. I think that's a, yeah. I think that's a reasonable. No, thanks for that. I, I, I can live with that. Matter of fact, I, I think even for the adults, their, their position is <clears throat> they're, they're, they're going to highlight the, the worst of the worst. 
I, I would do it in general. But yeah, I mean, I, I could live with something like that. If the idea is, you know, everybody does something, well, people, some people who can grow up to be good folks, you know, do some stupid things and you don't want it to haunt them around and you do something stupid and you, you don't necessarily want everybody to know about it. I, I, I can live with like a, a freebie the first time. Um, but look, if, if you're 16 years old and you're, you've been arrested and it's your third or fourth arrest and you're in that stolen car and you're, you know, fleeing the cops at some point in time, I, I just, and in the DA, the DA's office in Milwaukee County won't waive you into adult court. I mean, just for, for stealing a car, for example, and fleeing the police in and of itself, your chances of getting waived into adult court are probably slim to none. Now you drive, you blow through a red light and hit and kill somebody. It's a different sort of story. But, but in general, the car thieves, the fleeing police, if you're, if you're a juvenile, it, it's kind of like a license to at least not be held very accountable that, that's there. So, yeah, if, if you want to change the law and say, okay, here's we're not going to publicize it the first time, but the second or the third time you do it, I, I could live with that for juveniles. I think that's reasonable. But for everybody else, I, I just don't have a problem at all. And as far as the people who say, well, that, that's unfair, it's innocent until proven guilty. Now, look, it's a public record. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, we report all sorts of things. You know, that you, you know, you pick up the newspaper or you listen to my friend Melissa Barkley here doing the radio news, and, and we'll do regular things. Okay, two people, you know, have just been arrested for, you know, driving through a red light and hitting and killing two people, and the names of the people who have now been charged. Now, typically, we wait till folks have been charged, but we make that public. We don't say, oh, somebody just ran through a red light and hit and killed two people, and, you know, we're not going to tell you their names until they've been through the court system. No, I mean, once you're charged, it's a public document. It's a public record. And candidly, like I say, going back to this, I, I, I think it's great that the Milwaukee police are going to highlight one person every week for the next two months. And that, that, that's fine. I would. I'd encourage him to include the sentence and the judge that handed down the sentence. But in addition, I'd expand it. You get arrested for reckless driving or fleeing. Put your pictures out there. Put that mugshot out there on social media. And if it's a juvenile and it's the second or third time, all right, I'm willing to go with that. Do that as well. Let's let's stop protecting criminals. There, there's no there, I, I think at some point in time, the pendulum has swung too much that we're trying to protect the people that are out there that are victimizing society, that are putting the rest of us in danger for no good reason at all. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right. $8,160.49. Now, think, through what you could do with $8,160.49. You could do a lot, right? could get a better car. You could get... See, it's interesting that you would mention a car. Now, here... All right. Let, let me just start off to kind of, like, encapsulate this, this next topic. It's too bad, but the money is crazy. Here is the story. Back in 2013-2014, when the zoo interchange was being constructed, you had a couple local Milwaukee groups who sued the state, saying that the inner city, urban residents, were being discriminated against because we were putting state money into rebuilding the zoo interchange. Like The implication being that, that urban residents... Don't use the freeways, all right? But I, I, 
that that struck me. The lawsuit struck me as ridiculous, but regardless. So it, it gets settled. And what happens is, as a part of the settlement, the state agrees to kick out $13 million. And that $13 million was used to create bus lines that would run from inner city of Milwaukee out to, to Waukesha to supposedly bring people back and forth to jobs. All right, that was that $13 million. The $13 million and, and they had different routes. There were, there were a couple different routes. The $13 million ran out last year. And so this program was going to run out until Milwaukee County, which is rolling in dough, rolling in dough. You know, everywhere we look in Milwaukee County, there's just money flying. And it's not like if you live in Milwaukee County, you have any needs at all. It's not like you have needs for the roads. It's not like... You have people who want to spend money on the domes. It's not like, you know, you don't need money for the parks. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not like you don't need money for the pension. Milwaukee County, that is rolling in dough, decided we are going to continue this program for another eight months. We're going to continue this bus line. And what we're going to do is we're going to hope in that interim that the people in Waukesha will come around and they will realize that they should finance this because it's helping get workers, you know, to the areas. So Milwaukee, six, seven, eight months ago, comes up with $661,000 that is going to fund this bus line to bring people, again, from Milwaukee out to Germantown, Menominee Falls, etc. It's it's the Route 57 bus line is what they call it. So that's 661000 for eight months. That money is running out this week, and Waukesha has no interest in continuing it. So that bus line will be discontinued after, uh, again, after Friday. Now, it's, it's not that you can't get out there other ways, but again, it's, it's much more difficult. All right, so $661,000 the county board came up with, because again, the county board's rolling in dough, for the, this eight-month period. And now there is all this angst and hand-wringing over the fact that this bus line is being discontinued. Let me, let me share with you the first couple paragraphs of the story that appears in the Journal Sentinel a day or two ago. Headline, bus riders from Menominee Falls in Germantown will need to find another way to get around after Route 57 ends. After August 24th, riders in Menominee Falls in Germantown who use the Milwaukee County Transit System to get to Milwaukee will have to find another means of transportation. Route 57, otherwise known as the job lines into Waukesha County, will cease operations as its temporary funding ends. All right, that's that 661,000 that was put in after the 13 million. All right, now here's the number. The route currently serves 81 riders a day from Germantown and Menominee Falls. All right, 81 riders a day. $661,000 for 8 months. If you divide 81 into $661,000, you know the number you get? You get $8,160.49 per rider. $8,160.49 per rider. If you stretch that out over the year, that comes out, because again, this was only over eight months, it comes out to north of $12,000 per rider. 
Let me just let that number stand out there. $12,000 per year per rider. Now, now maybe th- this number is artificially low. Okay, May- maybe 81 riders, maybe it's it that's too small. Maybe it's it's 100 riders. All right? Maybe maybe they're off by 20%, maybe or 25%. Maybe it's 100 riders. All right? So you take 100 riders, that that's that's $6,600 per rider. I mean, to your point, my producer grew you could buy people a car. I mean, it, it's $12,000 a year. You could take those people and, and buy them a car or at least make a substantial down payment on a car as opposed to paying for this particular bus line. Now, I am not, I, I'm, I'm not anti-transit. I know sometimes people say you're anti-public transit. I'm not. But I, I'm, I, I think you have to be cost smart about these these things and i think you have to figure this out and you have to say okay what what makes sense now by the way if you even though that this jobs line is going to be discontinued there's still ways for example if you have a disability you know there's a whole separate you know sort of transit thing that you can end up plugging into and i don't know how many of those folks are included in those 81 riders now i understand for the 81 or 100, or even if you raise it to 120, you're still going to get these these crazy numbers. The bottom line of this is, for whatever reason, there's just not enough demand to you know make this particular thing work. Now, I have a guess. I mean, part of my guess is, and this is the problem that a lot of people have with mass transit, people want cars. And what happens is you get a job, you know, regardless of where the job is, and after you get a couple paychecks, first thing you do is you try to buy a car because you don't want to be locked into having to ride the bus. And I understand there's some people out there who, you know, love to ride the bus or whatever. But, I mean, I think that's one of the things that happens is that, you know, once you get a little bit of money, that's, you know, one of your first things other than, you know, maybe making sure your rent's paid or you get a little bit of better apartment or something like that. But, I mean, I I think people want to buy cars. But, you know, this story, and, again, it's, oh, Oh, and there's one story after another, and it's in the it's on TV, and it, it's in the newspaper, and all these other various alternative publications. Oh, this is terrible, and it's all these awful people in Waukesha, and the Waukesha County Board doesn't want to step up, and they don't want to help fund this. Well, okay, the reason the Waukesha County Board doesn't want to help fund this is because it makes no economic sense. I mean, seriously, you know, you would be better off. You could hire Uber. To come, you know, you you could again, you could say, okay, here, here, we're we're going to give you five thousand dollars. You know, all those eighty-one of you who are riding this thing, we're going to give you five grand, and you can Uber back and forth, and and you'd still save a ton of money. Now, again, it's just so when you read these stories, oh, this job lines is it's, it's closing down, and this is going to be awful because it's going to pose these transportation problems and stuff. And and for the handful, relative handful of people who are riding it, yes, it's probably going to make their life a little more difficult. I'm sorry for that, but. $8,160.49 per rider, 81 riders over $661,000 for eight months. It simply makes no sense. And before the county board funded this eight months ago, they should have had you know a really good idea of who was going to ride this and how much money it was going to be worth. But for anybody who thinks the people in Waukesha are evil because they don't want to put taxpayer money into this, $8,160.49 per rider. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. (laughs) 
So very glad to have you with us. I, I can't get over this story about the the, the, the people um, yesterday afternoon, the three people on electric scooters who got on I-94 in, in search of the Harley-Davidson Museum, westbound I-94 near 20th Street, Monday afternoon, actually heading away from the museum. According to the Sheriff's Department, they were using the GPS on their Lime scooters to find the museum. Okay, see, that that's not the issue. It, it's not with the scooters. It, it's not with the, the GPS. It's what kind of moron, whether you're from Texas or or Finland, you know, gets on a freeway and keeps going. I mean, that's that's the thing. Okay, I can understand. Maybe you take you, you take the wrong turn. And you think you're on a city street, and all of a sudden you start going there, and you say, "Oh my God, I'm I'm now on the freeway." Okay, all right. Don't you don't you just stop? I mean, at that point in time, once you see that you're going onto the freeway and you're on one of these scooters, don't you just suddenly decide, okay, made the wrong turn, let's stop and let's kind of get back out the way we came in. No, no, no. These guys decide to continue going. <sighs> you know, I, gee, who thinks these scooters are still a good idea? Maybe we're going to get to it. Marquette University has just banned these scooters on university property. All right. I think the University of Madison did the right thing. 414-799-1620. Here is the deal, and and now there's been a resolution of it. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, uh, the other last week. Quintus Cephas, um, first-rate wide receiver, played for the Badgers for two years. What happened is a year ago, a year ago, he was charged with sexual, uh, various forms of sexual assault. What happened is he meets these two gals in a Madison bar. They go back to his place and they have sex. And one of the gals says he sexually assaulted me. I was, you know, too drunk to, to know what's going on. Um, so one of the charges is, you know, uh, non-consensual sex with an un, with uh, with an intoxicated person, and the other charge is third-degree sexual assault. So he's charged in connection with with both women. It's a sort of a convoluted case. He is thrown out of school and he's thrown off the football team. It takes about a year for the case to go to trial. And case goes to trial. It's a week-long trial. He says, yeah, we, we had sex, but but actually th- this was all a consensual sort of thing. These two women came back to my apartment, et cetera, et cetera. The jury acquits him in 45 minutes. And take, you know, some advice from a recovering lawyer here, recovering trial lawyer. That That's you, – you rarely get verdicts in 45 minutes. It's only a case where the guilt is incredibly obvious or the failure of the state to prove guilt is incredibly obvious. That that is a that is an incredibly quick time. This jury comes back and they find him not guilty. Now in this country, you don't find somebody innocent. You find them not guilty. In other words, the state hasn't been able to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. But he is acquitted, he is a free man. And now there's the question about what the university does. There was a lot of pressure being brought on the chancellor to number one, not readmit him. And then number two, not allow him to continue to participate in football. The argument being, hey, regardless of what a jury said, he's still engaged in conduct unbecoming to a football player, brought embarrassment on the program. You know, he picked up these girls, took them back to the room, did whatever. There was an incident where his roommate apparently took a picture of one of the girls, that type of stuff. You should just throw you should you should continue to leave him off of campus. You shouldn't readmit him and you sure as heck shouldn't allow him to be back on the football team. Well, the UW Chancellor, who 
my impression was, was originally leaning towards that position. She's now said, no, he can come back to campus and he can rejoin the football team once the you know eligibility issues are, are worked out. So he's been reinstated and presumably, I, I think he's probably going to play football for UW this year. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right, in the era of Me Too, is this an insult to women who have been sexually assaulted? Or is this the right decision for the university to make, letting him back on the team? 414-799-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a moment. But UW has reinstated former wide receiver Quintez Cephas as a student. My understanding is he is also pending eligibility questions. He's also going to be reinstated on the football team. Is that the right call? If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner. Glad to have you with us. Ray in Sheboygan. Ray, what do you think about all this? Hey, Jeff. Hi, Ray. Uh, my, my first thought is, it, honestly, I'm the dad of two girls. I'm the grandpa of three girls. So in my world, if you sexually assault anybody, you need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But he was prosecuted. He was found not guilty. Right. That means in the eyes of the law... He did nothing wrong. That means we have to treat him like he was never charged with anything because he was found not guilty of that. Now, even though he was found not guilty in a court of law, and where the standard is the state having to prove your guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, the chancellor could have said, okay, even though it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, I've looked at these reports. I think he did stuff that he shouldn't have done in violation of the athletic code or whatever. I don't want to let him back in. She could have done that, theoretically. Theoretically, but then what is our our court system for? I mean, because that's literally where we should be taking care of these issues. Mm -hmm. If you did something that's against the athletic code, that's between you and the coach. And the coach has to decide whether you're eligible as well as the athletic director. But in the eyes of the law, he was found not guilty, which means he should be treated like you or me. Yeah, and thank, right. well, well, thanks for call, Ray. Well, I, I mean, I agree with that assessment. I, I think UW has done the right thing, and I think it's they've done the, the only fair thing here, um, given the fact that the, the the state wasn't able to prove allegations that he committed, you know, sexual assault, you know, felonies or whatever. Um, apparently, they investigated, and there there was this thing where. You know, his roommate took a photo of, of one of the girls that didn't have clothes on, and then they, they ultimately, when she complained, they ended up deleting that. And I think they decided that, you know, under those circumstances, that wouldn't be a basis to expel him or to kick him off the team. Um, so given that that's all they had, they let him back on the team. And, you know, I think that's absolutely the right decision. I don't say all this all the time, but I, I think the chancellor at UW this right. And I think if they hadn't allowed him back in school and back on the team, they would, they being the taxpayers of the, UW, of the state of Wisconsin, which is you and me, we would be looking at a major lawsuit because he would have sued. He would have said, look, I, you know, I, I was found not guilty in this regard. You know, I didn't go through, you know, administrative hearings. I didn't get prosecuted by, you know, the, the UW authorities. I got prosecuted by the DA's office and, you know, a jury in 45 minutes found that I wasn't guilty of the charges. And yes, I understand it's a different standard and things like that. But this is a particular case, which as you look back, 
candidly, with all due respect, I don't think it should have been brought in the first place. I, I think there were some political considerations that went into this. I don't know what happened between the two girls and this guy that night. I will tell you, when I read the criminal complaint, I didn't think there was any way in the world they were going to secure a conviction. The DA in Dane County has been, at least in my opinion, known to make political decisions. And in this case, I mean, this it was easier to bring charges. It, it just was because if you didn't bring charges, you knew you'd be open to all sorts of allegations of, hey, you're giving preferential treatment to this big-time football player. Um, so by bringing charges and then you know, putting the guy through a year of hell, at least, you know, from the DA's office, they can say, okay, you know, Me Too movement, don't be mad at me because, you know, I, I tried him and, you know, we, we saw what happened here. I, I think a different district attorney would have come to a different result. I don't think this case should have been charged in the first place. And the fact that, you know, it was resulted, it blew up in the DA's office's face as quickly as it did, tells me that there were some errors in the charging process to begin with. But I think that, you know, you make the matter worse if you don't let the young man back in school. And, yeah, I mean, I think he should be back in school under the circumstances, and I think he should be back on the football team. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. What do you mean I got to go back to school? It's only mid-August. That was a refrain I am sure you were hearing from lots of kids last week. Now, in Wisconsin, we have a state law. It was passed about 20 years ago. It is a state law which says that public schools cannot start classes before September 1st. Now, why did we pass this law? Well, we passed this law as a big, sloppy, wet kiss to the Wisconsin tourism industry. Um, some powerful legislators in the Wisconsin Dells, with some powerful contributors in the Wisconsin Dells, argued, first of all, if they start, if kids start school in August, what that means is their parents aren't going to be able to go on vacations in August, and so that's going to hurt our business. In addition, we depend on summertime labor, you know, for, for these vacation areas. And if you've got high school kids that are going back to school, well, they're not going to be able to work at the water parks and they're not going to be able to work at the restaurants and things like that. And, and we're going to be in a pinch. So in what I think was largely a big sloppy wet kiss to the tourism industry, we passed a law in two, 2000 or so that said you can't start school as a general rule before to that before September 1st, not Labor Day, but September 1st. There is an exception to that, which allows um, school boards to petition the state for permission to start early if they are able to show compelling reasons. And back in 2016, MPS started this early schedule and they said look here here's the here's the problem you know if if we don't start school until september 1st um we've got all these different test windows for college exams and for like state testing and stuff and if we don't get the kids back until september 1st that doesn't give us enough time to get the kids ready for these various tests so what we want to do is we want to start earlier and they got permission to do that. So in, for example, Milwaukee Public Schools, a week ago yesterday, 43 out of 160 MPS schools, so that's about what, you know, do the math, about 25%, including 
all the high schools, all MPS high schools, started school, not September 1st, not after Labor Day, but they started school a week ago Monday. What was that, August like 12th or something like that? So the literally, the state fair comes to an end, and the next day, the high school kids at MPS are back to school. So they're in school in the middle of August. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right, MPS had to petition the state for permission to do this, and, and they got it. And their justification, again, is this whole testing thing. Here is my question to you. Do you think the state should continue to maintain a law which says, as a matter of law, public schools, you know, you know, Wauwatosa, Grafton, you know, Whitefish Bay, whatever, Green Bay, your school districts, you are not by law allowed to start before September 1st. Do we need a statewide mandate for that? Or should it be up to the local school board to decide when they want to start school? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should school be able to start before September 1st? What do you think? We discussed in just a moment, and I will tell you where I come down on this as well. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should schools be able to start before September 1st? We'll talk about it in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 414-799-1620. Let's start with John in Wauwatosa. Hi, John. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. Okay, school. Right now, the law says unless you get special permission, you can't start before September 1st. Is that good or bad? That's good for me. Okay, tell me why. So I have one daughter in a public school, one daughter in a parochial school. So the daughter in the parochial school started now, and that basically ends our summer for family vacations, right? And then they say, well, they get out early. I say, well, what good does that do me? My other daughter's in school, you know, for still a couple weeks, so I still can't do family vacations. We have a very short summer in the Midwest. Let's call it six, seven weeks. Can't we please just give us eight weeks of summer July and August for our family time. Okay, because I, well, I was going—I was kind of curious because what if, what if your your daughter in public school um, started school earlier, so she got out at the same time that your other daughter got out with? So you still get the two months, but you get them—you know—in in June, you get a mid-June through mid-August. No, the weather. June weather's not good. If we go up north, the water's too cold. You can't be on the boat. I'd rather do July, August. Perfect. Okay. All right. Thanks for call for. I'm, I'm going to tell you where I come down on this in just a minute, but I, I want to get some thoughts on this. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Now I agree that you know, in, in, when you got a kid in public school and you got a kid in parochial school and they're on different schedules, that becomes a little bit more challenging. But at the same time, you, you still do have that that window, and so maybe instead of eight weeks, he's got a six week window to to get on. Well, you know, okay, so mid June, July, mid August, you probably still have a two month window to get through. But four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. All right, should we change the law that says, as a general rule, schools have to start before September 1st? I'm sure there's a lot of MPS kids that uh, about a week ago were going, wait a second, it's mid-August and we're already going back? Jerry in New Berlin. Jerry, you're on WTMJ. Well, uh, Jeff, thanks for putting me on. I appreciate you setting the record straight on this. Okay. Because the teachers, which is all a fashion, will beat up on. My wife was a teacher. 
Uh, they didn't make the law. Right. No, <laughs> okay. no, no. It's a legislature, and it, it was it was like I say, it was a sloppy, wet kiss to the tourism industry. Yep. That's the history Absolutely. of this. Absolutely, and it was during the Thompson administration, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And they uh, they and and they basically said the teachers have no problem going back early. Most of the schools are air conditioned. By this, they don't like that big of a break in the summer. To be honest with you, I mean, right. they still love their time off, but they'd rather have more breaks in the year and don't keep the kids out that long because. Kids lose stuff over the summer, so right. make it a little shorter. Maybe make you know make a decent break so people can go on vacation at Easter or different times. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's and of course, I mean, MPS's justification for starting earlier and, and petitioning for the special improvement is exactly that. It said, look, if the if the kids are out for you know two and a half months. We're concerned that we're going to have trouble, you know, getting them ready to take the tests and the college prep thing and all. We don't think that that's good. And and candidly, I think there's some value. I think there's some validity to that. Right. A lot of these kids, too, are, some of them are brought back for that specific reason because they need a little extra help. So it's kind of like give them a little bit of a jump start so that when school starts, they'll hopefully, you know, be closer to be up to speed with the other kids. Yeah. Now, thanks, Nicole. I appreciate it. I mean, oops, oops, I'm sorry. Turn that down. Thanks a lot. Hit, hit the wrong button. See, I'm going for I'm going for one day. They, we have all these buttons that I sit in front of, and I'm, I'm only allowed to hit like three of them, and I hit the wrong one right there. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Jessica in Milwaukee. Hi, Jessica. You're in WTMJ. Hi. Um, I think that the testing thing, the testing excuse that they they talk about, is completely just an excuse it's it's not valid because the early start calendars they start mid-august they get out mid-may right whereas the other schools start in september and they're getting out mid-june you're still going to school for the same amount of time right i guess the argument though is they've got a lot a lot of the testing is accelerated early in the fall and they don't want to have that that three month get that two and a half month gap leading into a lot of the testing i mean that's the argument that they make so do you think yeah. it's a, do you think it's a good idea or not I, I don't know. I really don't care either way as long as all the kids are in the same school, but when they're not in the same school, it's kind of a pain. Oh, I can, yeah. If, if you had, if you had one kid at MPS high school and you had a couple others at the grade school, so the ones, the, the one goes, has to go back August 5th and the other one doesn't have to go back till September, August, you know, 13th and the other doesn't have to go back till September 5th. I could see from mom and dad's perspective why that would be a pain in the, you know, where. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Thanks. So well, I'll tell you, here's where I come down on this. I, um, and I, I admit I bring part of my my personal preference into this. First of all, I understand the callers that we're talking about. You know, people said, "Hey, it's a pain if you've got a kid in a parochial school versus private school." Or to Jessica's point, you know, it, it's okay with all our three kids in the same school, but if they were in different schools, it would be a pain. Um, here's what I think: I don't think this should be a matter of of big government, state government control. I think this should be a matter up to local school boards. For example, now I'm just giving you my personal preference. When I was in college, I went to a school in a in a rural area and we started early, we got out early. And the reason for that was a, a lot of the kids I went to co- this is college. This isn't this isn't high school and, and grade school. But in, a lot of the college kids were farm kids. And they, they worked family farms, and they wanted to be out of school early so they could do spring planting and things like that. And so the schedule accommodated that. The semesters, you know, the spring, the, the Christmas break was a little bit less, but we started earlier. We got finished earlier. And, yeah, did I go to school, you know, a week or two? This is, again, college. A week or two before a lot of my peers did, yeah, but I was out a couple of weeks early. 
I candidly, and this is just me, you know, even in grade school and in high school, generally by mid-August, I was ready to go back to school. And I understand that sounds weird, but I was ready to go back to school. Um, I would have much rather, in high school, I would have much rather started in mid-August. Now, I don't know about the 12th of August. That sounds a little bit early. But I would have much rather started in mid-August and gotten out by the beginning of June. Because let's face it, those last couple weeks of school in June, when the weather's starting to turn nice, there's not much educating that's going on. But regardless, I just don't think I disagreed with this law when they passed it. It, it was passed in an effort to try to, again, appease powerful interests, particularly in the Wisconsin Dells, about the tourism industry. And I just, I don't think you should be, I don't think state policy should be dictated by, you know, what's good for the Wisconsin Dells. And I love the Dells. This isn't it. I think local school boards should have the ability to decide what is the best for the kids in our district. Is it, is it, and, and again, there's going to be all sorts of factors that go into it. What do the parents want? Are there lots of parents in our district, like the, our first caller, who, you know, wants, wants that extra two weeks at the end of August to take the family vacation? Well, okay, that's a concern you express to your local school board. Do you have an issue in your local school? Um, are the schools air-conditioned or they aren't they? I mean, I, I appreciate that. If, you know, you got a 100-degree day in August um, and the school isn't air-conditioned, that's awful tough to do any learning but maybe you live in a school district where there's no issue with that i just don't think that this is something that the state government should be dictating leave it up to the local school districts to decide when they are going to start classes just like the parochial schools get to set their own calendar now i do think you know i mean i do think if i were on the local school board i think a unified starting date would make sense i mean i think mps you know having Twenty-five percent of the schools start on one day, and the rest start on a different day. I'm not sure how much sense that makes. I think it would be better for that school district, but to the but the but again, MPS they don't have the right to do that. They have to petition for the people they want to start earlier, and they have to justify it. I think local school districts should be able to decide on their start date based on the needs of the local community. So, if you are in a rural area where you got lots of family farms and stuff. And, you know, you, you want the kids out earlier. Okay, maybe that's a concern that the school board takes into account. If, again, there's a big issue with people wanting to take vacations, all right, that's fine. If you're in the Wisconsin Dells, for example, and you, you know, you're, you're dependent on that last two weeks of, of August for lots of people trying to get a last minute pre-Labor Day vacation. Okay. Well, you know, at least your school district where the majority of your kids are going to come from, you don't start till, you know, after September 1st. All right. I, that, that's all fine. You can tailor it, but this is one where I don't think you need a one size fits all solution because candidly, this is a big state with all sorts of different interests. And honestly, I mean, I understand there, there was a move afoot to try to, again, bring back local control. It, it went nowhere in the Republican-controlled legislature, in part because, again, there's some powerful tourism industry issues that are there. I'm not anti-tourism, and I'm not convinced that allowing school districts to start when they want is really going to hurt tourism that much, because the bottom line is you're still going to take your family. If you take a family vacation for a week or two weeks during the summer, you're still going to go 
regardless of when school starts. Maybe you'll go in July instead of the end of August, but you're still going to go. Leave it up to the local school districts to decide what works best for their particular school district. And if you're in a school district and you don't think that the local people on the school board have made a good decision, um, then you run against them. You run for office, you win yourself, and you change the rules. That's what this country is all about. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. You can never go wrong with Credence. Matter of fact, I uh, just just downloaded uh, Credence Clearwater Revival, their performance at Woodstock back in 1969. Never made the movie because John Fogarty, who's the driving force at, behind Creedence, he wasn't happy with their performance. They went on like to 2 o'clock in the morning, and he, he didn't think they were any good, so he wouldn't give permission to allow it to be you know, copied or presented. They just did. So it's, I just haven't listened to it yet, but I just, just got it. So I'm, tonight I think I'm probably going to sit down and listen to their Woodstock show. All right, I have a why question for you, and, and I want to get your input on it. Target. Um, has a big warehouse out in Oconomowoc, you know, for their their online stuff. They employ about 800 people. Target has just announced that they are going to be hiring another 100 people over the next couple months. So they're, they're looking for people to fill these jobs. It doesn't require any particular education. But um, you do need, it's physically demanding work. You need to be able to, if you're working in the warehouse, you have to regularly lift and carry merchandise weighing up to 47 pounds. If you're hired to be a packer, you have to lift and carry merchandise up to 30 pounds throughout a shift. So it's physically demanding, it's physically demanding work. They employ about 800. They're going to be employing another 100 people or so. They have announced, follow me on this, the starting salaries, starting wages for people at this warehouse is going to be $19.08 an hour. $19.08 an hour. All right, I have a question. It's not a trick question, but I, I want, I legitimately want your input and your thoughts. Why do you think it is that Target is paying $19.08 an hour for entry-level warehouse workers? unskilled work, essentially, don't need any particular type of education, don't need a law degree, need to be able to lift 47 pounds. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Why do you think it is that Target is paying $19.08 an hour? And in contrast, just to give you a f- uh, the the Amazon Distribution Center in Kenosha, that's uh, they pay fifteen dollars an hour. So Target is paying nineteen dollars and eight cents an hour to start, four bucks more than Amazon pays to start for warehouse work. Why is Target paying nineteen dollars and eight cents an hour? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let me give my producer Gru a chance to get the calls lined up, and we're going to be back and discuss. It's not a trick question. It's just. Why do you think it is that they're paying $19 an hour? Minimum wage is, is what, 8 or $9 an hour or $10, whatever it is. They're paying $19.08 an hour. We discuss in just a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 
This is going to be an interesting conversation. If you're just tuning in, okay, Target has a big warehouse in the Oconomowoc area. It employs right now about 800 people. They're looking to add another 100 jobs over the next month or two. Their starting salary is going up to $19.08 an hour. Now, it, it's warehouse work. It's tough. you got to be able to lift 40 up to 47 pounds. If you're working in the warehouse proper, if you're a packer, you have to be able to lift like 37 pounds. So it's hard work. You, you know, you need no special training. You need no experience. You don't need a college degree or a law degree, and you're starting at $19.08 an hour. That's what Target is doing. Government's not making them do it. My question is, why do you think it is that Target is paying $19 an hour for these jobs? Let's start with Adam in Milwaukee. Hi, Adam. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, just shooting from the hip, but probably a couple things. Sure. One, the uh, unemployment is uh, so low, and that uh, there's like, a lot of jobs out there, and so that part of it is the uh, uh, the economy of demand. And then number two, I talk to my friends that employ people and they say, I'm um, just good, reliable, hardworking workers are, are unicorns these days. They're mm-hmm. hard to find. And so if you want to be able to, uh, kind of sort through the workforce and, um, attract and keep the, uh, the highest quality of workforce, then you're going to have to pay a wage that, that, uh, uh, that, that bears that. Right. Okay. Good enough. Thanks for going. I'm, I'm going to tell you where I come down on this in just a minute, but I want to, I, I I want to hear what you think. So, okay, these are theories. What What is your theory as to why Target is paying $19.08 an hour to start for this warehouse work in Oconomowoc? Jim, out in West Bend. Hi, Jim. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, I think a couple of things. And one is that you had mentioned the minimum wage is at, what was that, 8 something an hour? Right. When I was growing up, I had minimum wage jobs in high school and stuff like that. I don't think you can get one, a job that only pays that. You've got your entry level or your stepstone places that are at fourteen, fifteen dollars an hour now, mm-hmm. um, and you don't have to put that kind of labor into making that as you would at Target. So that's going to bump everything else up, and so now they're going to have to make an incentive to go to that type of job to perform that kind of labor over something else. Right, because it's going to be. It's what you're saying is it's going to be hard, relatively demanding work, and. You're 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 going to have to pay more for somebody to do demanding work than for somebody who, you know, might and I, I don't mean to disparage fast food workers, but might be working at a drive-through line. You're going to have to pay more to get the person that's willing to haul forty-seven pound boxes for eight-hour shifts. Right, and yeah. and also real quick is kind of like what the the previous. I'm in a trade, and not all. There's always exceptions for rule, but the majority of of generation and now to put in manual labor is getting is harder and harder to find. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to start driving wages up to just to, again, make incentives for some of these to start thinking about doing these types of jobs. Okay, thanks for the call. 414-799-1620. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where I can come down on this, but I want to... I want to get as many opinions as possible. This isn't the government. This is Target saying $19.08 an hour for, you know, again unskilled and i'm not diminishing this you know hard work but but unskilled work why are they paying that much kathy in milwaukee kathy you're on wtmj hi this is kathy from milwaukee hi kathy um i guess um i'm just saying that it's it's repetition and you know it's 50 pounds and um, it's it's hard work it's a lot of lifting yeah sure yeah i have a cousin who tried to do it for two and a half almost three years they're out in in the warehouse in oconomowoc and it was lived in Milwaukee. It was location also, and it was the work. He's and not only that, but they don't tell you, but they really frown on you only working eight hours. They want to push the 10, 12 hours a day, 
And if you're continuously lifting 50 pounds, you know, every 10 minutes, you know, you're too tired to spend your money and <laughs> your back hurts and you're not feeling well by the end of the week. Okay, so so why are they paying that much money then? I mean, it, it's tough, it's strong, it's it's hard work, but they have yeah. to spend that much, they have to pay that mon- money because? Yeah. Because you have to have the stamina to do the work. Okay, got it. So you need the right type of employee. Okay, thanks for call. 414-799-1620. Erica in West Bend. Hi, Erica, you're on WTMJ. Hi, um, my thoughts on it are that they want to keep a reliable employees and to keep their employees happy. Uh, right, so you want to have, you, you want you want people coming back. It, it's hard work, and you, you want to make sure that they have enough, they're paying enough that they say, okay, gosh, this is just too, I, I, it's hard work, but I'm going to keep showing up day after day because I'm getting enough money. It's, it's, it's worth it to me to do that. Yeah, and they want to be competitive as well. Got it. Okay, thanks for call. Appreciate it. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Mark in Muskego. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Why is Target paying $19.08 an hour? Most of the points have been brought up already, but the one that was missed is Target wants to go for the best of the best right out of the box. In other words, there's manual labor in all different types, like you said, fast food, yada, yada, like that. But if you're going to pay another four or five dollars more than everybody else is paying you're going to get the best of the best and the people that are working there at amazon or other uh, types of jobs like that they're going shoot for five bucks an hour more four bucks an hour more i'm going over here i'm going to be doing the same work but i'm going to be getting four or five dollars more so rather than uh target having to sort through people they're going to get the best of the best right out of the box you know they're they're going to have the guy man or woman who said I've been doing this for two or three or four years, right. and they're going, okay, they, they're physically able to handle it. We're going to reward you with a high starting pay right out of the box, not having you work up to it because you've already proven yourself. Right, and presumably, so you'll be able to retain, and presumably you'll be able to retain those people as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, thanks for the call. Let me just take one more, and I'll tell you where I come down. It's Mike in Oak Creek. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Uh, I, think it's comp- I think it's competition. Uh, there's a big Roundies warehouse in Alcanamwalk. Right. They're offering almost $19 an hour. So in order to get the workers, you got to offer a little bit more. Right. There's advertising on TV for Roundies all the time. Right. So they gotta they got to pay them so they can compete with the other jobs that are out there. Okay, thanks for calling. Here, here's the thing. You know, this is one where, where you all get a prize because you're all right. Why is Target paying $19.08 an hour? Is it out of the goodness of their heart? Is it because, gee, you know, we think this is what people need for a living wage? number of people are saying they don't pay benefits. I don't know that. I, I, the story I have, I don't know whether the job comes with benefits or not. I don't know. But ni- why are they paying $19 an hour? Because to compete, they have to. See, and this is my point circling back to the minimum wage. I have a I have several friends who are in the fast food industry, including a couple who own a series of fast food restaurants. They they say, look, this minimum wage debate, you know, raising it to ten dollars an hour or twelve dollars, that doesn't come into play because we can't find people at minimum wage. We, you know, 
to the point that all of the callers were making. You know, we want to find good people to do the job, and we want people who are going to show up for the second day and the third day. And it, if we're paying $10 an hour, we, we can't get those people. So the reason we're paying twelve fifty an hour or whatever to start is because that's what we have to pay to get people who will do the job. And that's the way the free market system operates. Target is paying $19.08 because to get the type of workers they need for their workforce, that's what the job is worth. That's what they have to pay to get people who, again, to the point that many of you were making, to, in order to get people who are going to show up and who are going to do the job. And, you know, and, and maybe maybe part of it's that, you know, it's Oconomowoc. So your, your labor, your immediate labor pool isn't perhaps as large as maybe as it was somewhere else. You know, maybe there's a larger labor pool in Kenosha. But the reason Amazon pays $15 an hour is because that's what it costs them. That That's how much they need to pay in order to get the type of employees that they need to do the job. That's what the job is worth. Similarly, for Target, it's $19.08. That's what they have to pay to get people to do the job. And I guess, see, this is my point when I hear this dialogue about the minimum wage. Well, the government should have $15 an hour. No, no, the government has no business in this. Now, I don't mind putting a minimum wage so there's some sort of floor in there, but the reality is, you know, in for example, we have a, an era of almost full employment now. You know, you don't need the government coming in and saying to Target, well, you know, you you got to you got to pay whatever these wages are. Target knows what they have to pay. And this is the operation of the market, free market system. To get the folks Target wants, they got to pay 19 bucks an hour. And that's their starting salary and go up from there. Amazon pays $15 in Kenosha. It's going to vary. Maybe, you know, the guy I know that, that runs fast food restaurants, you know, maybe, you know, in one location in order to get people that, you know, are, are going to work and do the good job, he's got to pay 15 Maybe in another place he's got to pay 13 I, I don't know. It's going to be dependent. But, the, you know, for everybody who says we need the government to come in and, and set these these floors, my argument is, no, we, we don't. What's going to happen is water is going to find its own level. And here you're seeing that exact example. Target, there's a, th- this industry, the warehouse industry is exploding when it comes to, because everybody's ordering over the internet and things like that. The numbers are up dramatically as, um, let's see, jobs in this sector grew 54% nationwide from 2014 through last year. That's what the article says. 54%. Uh, private sector jobs as a whole rose about 8%. So, I mean, this is a sector that is booming as more and more people order stuff over the Internet, which means you need more and more warehouse workers to fill the orders. So it's the free market operating at its best. Target pays the money, not because the government tells them they have to, not because protesters tell them they have to. They pay the money because that's what the job is worth, period.